destination is on your left. This week on Emerged. Christianity started out as a movement in, in Judea and then went to Rome and became an institution and then went to America and became a business. We called ourselves Emergent Malaysia at the end, not because we were interested in the brand. It was because we wanted to feel that we were part of something bigger. There was quite a lot of interest from the US, I think, in the UK, partly because we, we've excelled at church decline, so we were way ahead. <laughs> the job was going around England drinking coffee with cool people and having conversations and all of that stuff. I wanted to do something similar in Northern Ireland, called them Transformance Art, uh, and they involved music, you know, DJs, poets, cabaret, music, magic, spoken word, to create experiences in which people confronted themselves really and their own disavowed doubts, unknowing and complexity. While you guys were doing what you were doing in those, those early days of finding each other and putting those early conferences together, what was happening in South Africa is the ending of apartheid. What would it look like if we brought some of these emerging Jewish leaders, some of them are rabbis, some of them aren't, and then put them in conversation with some of our emergent colleagues. And I found Emergent Village at that point. There's so much for us to learn together here from one another. There's a lot for me to learn as a brand new you know, rabbi, having launched this community from you who had experience in the field. But also our work is not contradictory, but it's complementary. That we're all working to help people feel connected to community. We're all trying to build a beloved community. We're trying to build a more just and loving society. This week on Emerged. About every 500 years, the uh, Latinized culture goes through a, a huge upheaval, and we're going through one right now. Every time that happens, whatever form of Christianity has to drop back and reconfigure, it doesn't ever cease to be. They had a deep suspicion of hierarchy and institutionalism. If fear is the motivation behind not dealing with those sort of in-the-back-of-your-mind questions, that to me is the worst kind of faith of all. It's, it's yeah. despair. Welcome to Emerged, a story of young leaders who had audacious dreams, who became loyal friends, who achieved fame and influence, who burned brightly, but briefly. And now for the first time, many of the leaders reflect on their participation in the emerging church movement, and they consider the movement's legacy. Join us as we tell the tale of their successes and failures, the attacks they endured, the mistakes they made, what they left undone, and what they accomplished. Join us to hear the story of what emerged. And now, here are your hosts, Tony Jones and Trip Fuller, with producer Josh Gilbert. I want to find my way, find my way back home. I want to learn to love, and I want to be... Okay, so when it comes to terms, we've heard emergent emerging, emergent church, emergence. 
uh, two weeks ago with Phyllis. And as someone who's worked on this project for multiple months now, I know there's some contention around what the terms are and when to use them and who gets to use them and who doesn't. So can you just help this millennial brain of mine understand what's the difference, please? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not sure there's a completely clear answer to this, given it's like, you know, back in the day when you were a small child, Josh, this was hot blogging material. In the member feed last week, Phyllis Tickle jabs Tony, right, oh, as the director for Emergent Village, that, yeah, you're one part of this great emergence where the big cultural shifts are going on, and they aren't even just happening in America. They're happening globally. It's a big shift, and the great emergence is all part of it, and religion reshapes in it. One of the exciting things about doing this project is actually getting to learn uh, even more about what was going on globally. Like Tony and I were very much connected to Emergent Village and our friends in America we might interact with at events or we partner with on different ministries or books and all that kind of stuff. But the great emergence for using Phyllis's language is something that took all sorts of different shapes in different cultures at different times. And, you know, one of the cool things about getting to hear how it was happening in other parts of the globe uh, is realizing that this energy and the questions that kind of animated it uh, are something just people of faith were asking. It's not surprising that Americans telling a historical story might center themselves. So uh, this longer episode, Tony, <laughs> is one uh, that we hope to let the voices from the larger emerging church movement globally uh, give us a taste of what it sounded like when it kicked off there and how it grew and shaped and, uh, and took different forms. I mean, we have been telling our own story and, and we make no apologies for that. It would be weird if we told somebody else's story where, you know, we're telling the story we know. It's been kind of funny because here in 2024, when we release episodes, a lot of times the feedback online has been like, well, what about Australia? We were, why aren't you, t why are you never mention Australia or whatever? What's funny, you guys, is that that's exactly what was happening in like 2005. Same thing. Like, who are you guys? Emergent? You started a 501c3 nonprofit? Like, that's so American that you would commercialize this and brand it, <laughs> you know? And we took heat for it then. And, and there was some tension, frankly, between some of the uh, other places where these kind of emerging church movements were had been happening longer than we had them in the U.S. Well, damn this American empire, we all overpaid, to be sure I know it, even still, all those needs and wants and toys and taunts, they follow me. The U.S. is always the 800-pound gorilla in a room, and when it caught fire here, it was a, it became a really big deal, and it came with big conferences and book contracts and stuff like that. Well, the money's in the plate, and your life's in my hands, and you wonder if I'd even understand your situation here in this great nation. But this, this time... Unemerged. We are going to leave 
the shores of the United States. And we're going to fly around the world. We're going to take a tour and talk to multiple different people who were part of movements in their own countries, in their own cultures, and explain what emergence meant to them. This is not exhaustive. There are people we didn't get a chance to talk to. There are places where things were emerging that we we haven't been able to get people on tape as much as we've tried. And even so, this is a long episode because we talk to a lot of people and we want their voices to be heard. And the first person we're going to hear from, we're going to fly off to London where we're going to talk to Johnny Baker, who was one of the very first and premier bloggers. He's still blogging. Johnny Baker was a blog all of us were reading back in the day. And, and he is still involved in the same kind of work of shaping Christian leaders for missional work in the world, using cultural artifacts in Christian worship spaces. And so uh, I had a joy reconnecting with Johnny and talking to him. And here is straight from London, Johnny Baker. From a UK perspective, all, all worship began in the, in the 90s with two innovations, I would say. One was the nine o'clock service in Sheffield that was, I mean, that grew out of a youth group, to be honest, in a charismatic evangelical church. I never went to it, but it, it was an extraordinary thing that sadly ended up sort of controlling leadership one way and another later on. But that definitely was inspiring. And the other group were the Late Late Service in Glasgow. And in fact, the first time I came across so-called alternative worship was through getting a cassette of music from the Late Late Service and playing it and thinking, I just, I don't know what this is. You know, it was kind of, I mean, now you look at it, it's probably an 80s keyboard um, or whatever, but it had dance beat with it. But it was also the lyric. You know, I remember one of the tracks on that cassette was, you've got to struggle, you've got to strive for freedom. And then there was a sort of rapt verse, Jacob wrestled with an angel, Jesus argued with the devil, to be holy is to struggle, free from every kind of evil. And I was like, I love this, you know, it was just so interesting. So following that, and it was Greenbelt Festival that was the hub, there was a photocopied new news thing called what was it called? Regenerate or something like that, where on the back of it, you had a list of people who were involved and, and groups that were starting. So Grace, that I'm involved in, started in 1993. So in November, we'll have been going 30 years. I mean, how we limped on, I don't know. So yeah, you know, we were on the back of that and Greenbelt was absolutely a, a hub. D a, Doug Gay was involved in the Late Late Service, coordinated worship for a season. I, I followed on and we just hosted all sorts of people. It was, yeah, exciting time. Fresh Expressions in 2004, um, you know, so there'd been a, a decade of practice, really. The, the Church of England published a report called Mission Shaped Church. And what Mission Shaped Church was doing was a reflection on these new things that were popping up around the edges of the church, which was bizarre because the church was overall in decline. You know, it felt like it was a crisis. They just had a decade of evangelism and didn't seem to have improved things. 
and the Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, was keen to remind those leading fresh expressions of church what they were really about. As fresh expressions gets more successful, more widely known, more active and innovative, it's very important to remember that fresh expressions is not, first and foremost, about capturing a new market for a product. It's not even about signing up membership in an organisation. It's about transformation. That report, uh, the foreword, was by the then Archbishop Ryan Williams, who, who basically was saying these new things are good, tradition is good, let's have a mixed economy. But in that report, they were named fresh expressions of church. And yeah, I think it was the subtitle was something like church planting. In, yeah, it definitely had church planting in there as well. So it was fresh expressions and church planting. So that language came from there. And Graham Cray, who edited the, the report, he said that he picked that term because he felt it was neutral. It wasn't church planting. It wasn't emerging church. I think emerging church was seen to be a bit in the left field. So he picked Fresh Expressions or the group that did that. And I think in the Anglican church, there's the declaration of that the church will proclaim afresh the gospel in every generation. So it was a sort of a bit of a nod to a bit of Anglican code or something. <laughs> When I visited Johnny and some other innovative church people in the UK in 2001, uh, Johnny took me to the labyrinth, which had become kind of internet famous in the day. If you could be internet famous in 2001, it, it was, the labyrinth was. And uh, it ended up getting kind of packaged and sold in the US by group publishing. So I did ask Johnny about his labyrinth in a can. <laughs> Labyrinth in a can. Well, how that came about was we, I mean, that that was several alter, people from alternative worship groups in London got together to just talk about some ideas for what we might do for the millennium. So it was a turn of millennium thing. And there were various crazy ideas put out, one of which let, was let's do a labyrinth in St. Paul's Cathedral. You are on a journey a journey towards the light that is God. A journey towards the centre of the labyrinth and out again. A journey towards God and out again. Amazingly, that idea stuck, stuck and somebody got in contact with St Paul's Cathedral. They knew someone and they said, yeah, sure, you know, you could run that in Lent. And there were various stipulations with it that we couldn't play music out loud and we couldn't have things other than the labyrinth around the space because we'd envisaged, I think, more of a DJed space with some stations around the edge. So that that, if you like, those limits led us to, uh, to think creatively. So we recorded um, an album with meditations and put stations on the path that you did on the journey round. So, so that, that was basically a London project in St Paul's Cathedral that went very well indeed. And then we, we did run that at Greenbelt Festival. I ended up getting a team that ran it around um, cathedrals in London. But Rick Lawrence, who was at Group Publishing, was over visiting Pete Ward to find out about youth ministry in the, in the UK. And he wanted to talk to me. And I was running the labyrinth. So Pete had said, you should meet Johnny. So he came along to it and loved it. And he went back to Group and said, 
you know, everything we're talking about here in terms of pedagogy and whatever that we're not doing, um, actually I've just had an experience that kind of embodies that. So we then had a conversation and it honestly, it was like for a lot of the guys in all worship, because that was so anti-consumer culture in many ways or whatever, trying to persuade these guys that putting it in a can in the US was a good idea was not an easy task. <laughs> As I mentioned in the intro, there were some tensions as Emergent Village gained kind of some notoriety and popularity with other places in the world where emergence had been happening. And I asked Johnny about that. I mean, the tensions, I mean, probably the commercialization surprised us. So I I remember when, um, I can't remember when I met Brian McLaren, but his book, you know, people were reading over here and whatever. And when I met Brian, really liked him. And then, you know, there was a group that were meeting as Emergent. But I remember ringing Andrew Jones up when I'd heard that Emergent had done a deal with Zondervan and saying to him, what the hell are you guys doing? (laughs) We just couldn't fathom why you would do such a thing. (laughs) Because, I mean, it's not that people weren't publishing here, but the idea that you would sort of go in with a... I mean, I don't know much about Zondervan, but what looked like, you know, a big sort of commercial publisher rather than something that was a bit more independent or whatever was a surprise. And I still remember Andrew's answer. He said, oh, this is America. Yeah, this is just what people do. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, I I don't know that it was a tension. It was just, I mean, you know, I'm very, very fond of my connections with the US and people that were in the early days that were blogging. So that was anything I found that anyone did, I'd just whack it online that that was interesting. But I mean, it was definitely all of those things. And this was the instinct of alternative worship. It was world facing. You made worship out of the stuff of the wider culture, not the religious culture. So yeah, people kind of loved that. And it was a way of connecting. And, you know, this is obviously pre-Facebook and all of those social media things. So the conversation would happen either on email groups or in comments on the blog. So the conversation was right there where, where you where you were. One of the things about Mission, I mean, there's several things about it. One is it's obviously tied up with the expansion of Western Empire, and so there's old colonial things, so there's there's a complexity there for sure. But the, the thing I like about Mission is that it, it basically exists to join in with the world's healing, you know, whatever way you want to say that. It, it, it's for the common good. It's for the redemption of all things. So being part, uh, yeah, locating all of the conversation about emerging church and all worship and all that in that space, I think, has meant that I haven't haven't been able to just deconstruct. You know, there's a call to practice and I'm, I'm connecting with people who are interested in practice and training people out of that imagination. Now, deconstruction is totally fine with all of that, but you probably need some, you know, reconstruction and some practice going on. So I'm I'm actually really grateful that I landed in that space because I've definitely seen quite a few other people, this isn't a judgment on them, but they've landed in other spaces and I think, you know, they, they've kind of got great articulate theologies, but there's not 
not much practice it feels like in terms of communities and I, I still think neighborhoods the world needs community you know it needs to people people need places to belong and do that stuff little guns little kisses and the job was going around England drinking coffee with cool people and having conversations and all of that stuff we do not have to travel too far to talk to our next guest. In fact, we're not going to get on a plane. We're just going to get on one of those big red double-decker buses. And travel to another part of London to talk to Jason Clark, who founded Sutton Vineyard, uh, an emerging congregation in the vineyard tradition, and was very involved in the leadership of Emergent UK. Here is Jason Clark. Summer of 1999, I'm at an event uh, in Corona, California, near Anaheim with Brian McLaren, before he was Brian McLaren and really well known, Dallas Willard, Stanley Gredens, and Todd Hunter. And that's the first event I can remember going to that was exploring post-modernity mission, epistemology, and had Stanley Grenz using Star Trek Enterprise video clips that were dated back then. But it was an event that changed the whole course of my life and the rest of the emerging church things that followed was so significant for me. Brian McLaren in particular, back at that event, gave me his email address. Turns out he had visited my hometown, which was Luton, and he made himself available for questions and conversation. And that was something I was desperate for back then to find people I could talk to about changes in context and culture. And Brian was uh, really safe and, and wonderful. Um, that led to coming to a bunch of emerging church events with Brian and others in the US and making some new and wonderful friends. And then ultimately hosting some events in the UK uh, for Emergent. And Stanley Grenz, uh, that event back in 1999, a conversation with him where he asked if I'd considered doing any postgraduate theology. And that changed the whole course of my life um, through to doing a Doctor of Ministry and then a PhD and uh, what I get to do now at this stage of my life. So many of the early emerging church events were, when I remember them, were places to ask questions, safe places to ask questions that it wasn't particularly easy to ask about um, in terms of uh, hell and atonement and the gospel and postmodernity and deconstruction and, and all those kinds of things. And in addition to questions, over the years uh, in emerging church, lots of emotions grew over time. For some, uh, growing anger, for others, frustration, for others, hope, for others, despair. And then I think around about 2007, 2008, a real, as you'd expect, things starting to land in very different places uh, for some of us. But it was a really uh, wonderful time and lots of trajectories that uh, we ended up and I ended up on my own because of that. One memory in particular of an emerging church event in the US. I was hanging out with the emergent uh, US coordinators. We were staying somewhere, can't remember where, and Brian McLaren was playing some uh, DVDs of this guy called Rob Bell. A couple years ago, I was with my family, and we were spending some time uh, in this cabin in the woods on the edge of this remote lake. I mean, we were deep in the middle of nowhere. 
Um, so I remember watching those uh, before they were going on general release, I think. And I remember saying uh, rather stupidly, it, those are really good. It's a shame not many people are going to watch them. And I think ultimately the most important uh, has changed the nature of the church. And now we just have to climb into a puddle jumper and fly from London over to Belfast, Northern Ireland to talk with philosopher, author, and founder of the community of Icon, the illustrious Peter Rollins. I guess my first experience with anything connected to what's called the Emerging Church was with the alt-worship movement in the UK that really started, I think it was in like the mid-80s and then was at its height in the, in the 90s. Uh, I went over to England and I encountered some people who were connected to NOS. NOS was the most important group at the time. Uh, they'd actually disbanded at that point, so I was meeting some of the people who'd come out of that movement and also people who were connected to the Late Late Service. Uh, NOS and LLS were very influential to me in their form. Very creative, very immersive theatrical space. They, to some extent, birthed out of an interesting mix between charismatic evangelicalism, the vineyard church was very important in the early days, uh, connecting that with kind of the creative dance culture of the UK that was massive. Uh, and then they moved more into the creation spirituality of Matthew Fox. So when I encountered them, I, I was absolutely blown away by, by the kind of spaces they were creating. And I wanted to do something similar in Northern Ireland. But my influences were more in the area of continental philosophy. At the time, I was very interested in Derrida and um, the existentialists and post-structuralist philosophers. So we started to create these immersive gatherings. We call them transformance art. Uh, and they involved music, you know, DJs, poets, cabaret, music, magic, spoken word, to create experiences in which people confronted themselves, really, and their own disavowed doubts, unknowing and complexity, and creating a liturgical structure that enacted a type of profound experience of doubt. Uh, we did those events in a bar in Belfast for many years, started to go to a festival called Greenbelt. That was where we could put on larger events for thousands of people, and we did these large kind of theatrical performances. Icon had five kind of guiding coordinates, and one of them was the word emerging. And we took that word because I think it was a popular word at the time, but I had no idea that there was a, a movement called the Emerging Church happening in America. Uh, but I think some of the leaders of that movement had read my first book and were interested in putting on an icon gathering uh, at one of their conferences. So a few of us flew over and we went into this church and we did this kind of icon type experience. And an icon you were always trying to find the biting point where you created kind of something that was disturbing in the best kind of way, decentering. And I remember at the time we had a massive uh, cross hung in the center of the church. And as the service went along, it, it lowered until it was upside down. 
uh, the cross of St. Peter, who said that he didn't want to be crucified like his Christ because, uh, you know, he was not worthy. And people nailed something onto that cross. But it was quite a profound visual of this church with this massive upside down cross, <laughs> I remember. And then Phyllis Tickle's husband, Sam, was there and he enjoyed the service and he came up to me afterwards and said, I have to connect you with my wife, Phyllis. Um, you know, she's someone who I think would really enjoy what you're doing. And I think if that hadn't happened, we would have just done our service and gone home and nothing else would have happened. But I met Phyllis and she took a real interest in what I was doing. Uh, before her, Brian McLaren had helped me by getting my, helping me get my first book published. So Brian McLaren got me to that point and then Phyllis Tickle uh, said, right, I want to help you kind of make an impact in America and in the emerging church. And yep, that's kind of how Icon got woven into that movement. I will say that, uh, you know, for me, the emerging church had a number of different threads. Some of it was, was a kind of evangelicalism that was wanting to be progressive. Some of it was ty a type of post-evangelical approach that was moving towards trad, going back to a tradition, tra traditional church. There was process theology, and then there was a little stream of radical theology, which was really represented by, by myself and ICOM. And for me, in many ways, I saw the emerging church as a type of way to get radical theology into the minds and hearts of more American religious leaders. See, I was born into a family that was blind, blind to the future, blind to my searching. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to journey on to South Africa, Malaysia, and Australia before heading back to the West Coast of the United States. Don't want to listen to these ads? Then join the Emerged Podcast at emergedpodcast.com. For as little as 10 bucks, you can become a member. Members get access to all sorts of material, private podcast feeds, a whole Emerging Church archive, and much more. You can even get an Emerged Podcast mug. Join at EmergedPodcast.com. We'll be right back. What am I to do? Am I just passing through? friends if you if you want to hang out with us then consider coming to theology beer camp this october in denver colorado you'll not just get to hang out with us there'll be 20 or so different podcasts there'll be 20 or so different scholars theologians biblical scholars and such and there'll be hundreds and hundreds of people who like asking big questions and aren't sure where how together to do it if you want to be a part of that come taste the fun and delicious craft beverages come to 
camp, theologybeer.camp. Check it out, and we'll see you there. In The God of Wild Places, Tony Jones opens up for the first time about what pushed him out of the church and into the woods. And he explores the spiritual insights he's gained in wild places, about place and peace, about risk and failure, about predators and death. Brian McLaren says, I love this book. I love its honesty, its tenderness, its craft, its settings, its quests and questions, and the profound mysteries toward which it bows. It takes you places you need to go. The God of Wild Places by Tony Jones is available wherever books are sold. All right. While we've been away, we've been flying on a plane south to the southern tip of the African continent to Johannesburg. And now we're going to hear from my friend Graham Codrington, who was a young youth pastor in South Africa when that entire culture went through a significant upheaval. Emergence helped him figure out how to do ministry in that rapidly changing context. Here is Graham Codrington. While you guys were doing what you were doing and you in those, those early days of finding each other and putting those early conferences together, what was happening in South Africa is the ending of apartheid. And so I think we might have, and by we, I think we have very similar experiences of it being quite a white male evangelical movement, at least that was my experience of it. I'm sure there were other things happening in other parts of the church uh, across South Africa at the time, but my experience was definitely similar to what I'm, I'm hearing on the podcast. So there's a layer of youth ministry, young pastors with a call to ministry feeling that it wasn't just a change in flavor. It, there was something bigger happening. I, I definitely resonate with, with what I've heard people say. And I, I read those books on postmodernism and I wish I could have been in the conferences to hear people like Stanley talking about them. But, but we read those books and we had a similar feeling. It wasn't just a change in flavor and taste. There was something bigger happening. And we began to get the words from emergent, the, the words, uh, words of postmodernism and emergent and, and progressive. But at exactly the same time for us, I, I, I think we might have followed similar paths to the USA, but we were ending apartheid. Nelson Mandela was released from jail in February 1990, so to put a time stamp on it. And then there was a period of four years where there was a negotiation between uh, those people who had previously you know, been uh, well, labeled terrorists, I suppose, by the apartheid government, but were obviously freedom fighters. And then the apartheid government and in 1994, in April of 94, we had our first full democratic elections. And I suppose anybody who knows anything about South African apartheid will know that the church was largely complicit with apartheid. In fact, Archbishop Desmond Tutu uh, used to say that the most segregated time in South Africa was Sunday morning. 
that even though we had apartheid on, on the law books, the churches did an even better job of separating black and white and different cultures in, into their different buildings. And so for us, there was maybe in those early 1990s, there was even more urgency than just a, a, a seeking out a new theology or pursuing a new understanding of new modes of worship. Um, I almost feel as I've been listening to the podcast, there was almost some frivolity around some of the, the stuff that you were doing, especially in the worship space. We felt a deep sense of urgency that we were the generation, the younger pastors who were being trained in the ministry in the late 80s and early 90s, that we had an obligation to do something different. We had to find each other across those color barriers. We had to build churches that were integrated because in 1994, in, 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 in the click of a finger, the, the country became a democratic, non-racial, integrated country. Well, at least in law it did. But now the churches we wanted as younger generation for the churches to lead the way. And your voices from America by way of books and then many of, of, of those voices who, who came to visit us in South Africa. I remember, for example, Brian McLaren coming and uh, really, I, I had no idea how much he, he charged. I only found out later. He didn't, I don't think he charged us anything, to be honest, uh, to come out. And we were reading the books that you were writing. We were reading the books that you were reading. Uh, we were listening to whatever we could get our hands on. But there was very much an immediate impact. The language you were all using and the, the, the pictures you were painting of what was going to happen, we actually felt that we were living it, not experimenting with it, actually living it uh, in the moment. And so Emergent was very real uh, for many of us. And I spread my network across different denominations and into different parts. And, and there were, these things were going on. Um, they maybe were going on even more so in the very conservative Dutch Reformed Afrikaans church. This was the church that had officially been the church of the apartheid state. And uh, so I need to, if, if we're mentioning names, I must mention Professor Milan Nell and Dion Kitching and others who then realized that there was huge benefit in connecting us with the international growth of the, of the emerging church. And so a good friend of mine, roughly same age, Charlene Swartz, was a pioneering youth worker who has since become a youth researcher. And she and I uh, were studying at the Baptist Theological College at the same time. So we managed through our connections. I happen to be the, the son of, of one of the big guns in the Baptist Union, uh, who had been a president of the, of the union. And uh, we got ourselves a slot in the annual assembly of the Baptist Union of South Africa, which was very unusual. I don't think they'd ever, give, ever given youth specialists a, a, a sort of keynote main stage slot. And Charlene and I basically wrote a paper, which was published in, in the Baptist Journal that year, which showed some of the statistics of generational change, but then began to pick up the language of 
emergent in the language of the emerging church, where we just said, yeah, the, the church is going to die. You know, these were the things that you were seeing in America, and we were showing some of the statistics that you were seeing, and then showing through our own research that this was very much mirrored in South Africa, that the, the next generation, Phyllis Tickle basically called it, you know, she said 10, 15 years from now, these guys aren't going to have a church to run. And we stood in front of one of the, the, the stronger evangelical denominations and we said to them, you are not going to have churches to run. That didn't go well, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, you know, we were pretty sure that we were right. I, I, looking back now, I think we were spot on the money. But I didn't have the political uh, savvy, I think, to understand what the backlash for me. I, I was this idealistic young guy who had grown up in the church, was part of one of the royalty families of the denomination and just thought my voice would, you know, echo through the empty churches and be listened to. And of course, now we look back, we realize, oh, it was obvious what was going to happen. They didn't like the message. And so they decided to shoot the messengers. We were very much uh, ushered out. And, and literally, in my case, uh, I was uh, invited to hand in my resignation uh, as a pastor and handed it in before the invitation became more official than that from the denomination. That was also related to, to be fair to the Baptists, to issues around sexuality, because uh, once you start pulling at a thread, uh, lots of threads emerge, um, and you have to sort of pull it at all of them. And so we were in that situation of doing Phyllis's uh, rummage sale and sort of realizing we've got to have these conversations. And if we if we're changing what apartheid church looked like, then maybe we should change what patriarchal church looked like. And if we're doing that, well, then maybe we should look at all issues of gender. And that was just too much uh, for most of those conservative churches. And so many of us were ushered out into parachurch ministries. And we only had a few of those. And we didn't have enough of a support structure amongst ourselves. We didn't have enough people amongst ourselves uh, to keep that, that momentum going. So I, I really, uh, listening to the podcast, it's been bittersweet, to be honest, because I, I believe we were right in, in our critique. I believe we were naive in our application of our criticism. And I think there's a job that's left undone because the church is really struggling. They chewed us up and spat us out, but that didn't solve their problem. Uh, many of us have, have sort of moved to the, moved to the edges. We, we haven't found a way to stay inside institutional church. I feel that there's a lot of work undone. I hopefully, hopefully we can still get it done. The influence of emergent in, in the US, and it's, it's, it's correct that the podcast so far is focused on what you, how you all found each other and, and, and how you worked together and, and, and what the movement achieved. But, but the ripples were immediate. 
as as you your influence uh, around the world. As I say, I wish we had had YouTube and other podcasts back then, but but literally just the books, the bootleg probably DVDs that we all got, or you know, probably cassette tapes and videos. I'm I'm that old. I remember the first time, for example, I read a new kind of Christian. I think I cried for hours because I said to my wife, "These are the words." I. I've I've known what the feelings were, but I didn't have words for these things. And suddenly we found the words and then via Brian found all the rest of you. And so even though Emergent was located in the US, you gave opportunity for networks to emerge around the world. And as I say, your graciousness in, in coming to us and then inviting us to join you allowed those networks to emerge. And I'll be forever grateful for that. We're getting on a plane again, friends, and we are flying to Malaysia, where we're going to meet Sivan Kit, who is actually currently in Geneva, working for the Lutheran World Federation. But back in the day, he was a Lutheran church planter in Kuala Lumpur who started Banksar Lutheran Church and was encouraged to start blogging by some of the other people you've heard earlier on these podcasts. So here's Seven Kit telling us about what it was like to emerge in Kuala Lumpur. Well, when I was in Malaysia at that time, I started uh, uh, or planted a church. You know? It was called Bangsa Lutheran Church in, in Kuala Lumpur, the capital. And um, it was the year 2000, I remember, when I planted that church. And it was funny because that time, for our church plant, we were reading The Purpose Driven Church as kind of the book that was supposed to help us start off. But actually, deep down, the book that I was inspired was Brian McLaren's Reinventing the Church. It was his old book, uh, or his first book, which later is called Church on the Other Side. So that was like maybe a little spark, you know, just reading that book was pretty inspiring. And then, uh, of course, this was a small congregation, you know, young adults, you know, I was a former youth pastor, and I think part of the inspiration, or at least how I felt I resonated with some of the discussions beyond, was because of youth ministry. I was wrestling with you know, how some of our churches in Malaysia was also interested in the kind of mega church methodologies. and But I was not satisfied with it. I was quite frustrated with that kind of approach. So it was more through that, it was kind of started things going. That laid the seeds, maybe for my own frustration in uh, what I envisioned what the church uh, could be, you know, or should be from from my perspective at that time. What really got me into this conversation, I would call it still the emergent conversation, was when I started blogging. So it was through blogging that I started and then suddenly the world just broke open for me. Uh, because I was one of the first, at least I can claim, the first Christian bloggers in Malaysia. So it was really fun. And then I thought, oh, this, this Malaysian pastor you know, can connect with the world. And, and we are at least discussing similar questions. That was what inspired me. That got me into the conversation. 
Of course, by then I was reading quite a lot of Brian's books. I, I was reading some of yours too, Postmodern Youth Ministry, Sacred Way, that was the other one. And yeah, Brian's books was quite helpful, I think, uh, for me, because somehow his creative fiction stuff, New Kind of Christian, was also quite fun. I think in, in some of your previous podcasts, you talked about the theological side and the ecclesial, the church, uh, reaching out to the next generation discussion. And mine was a bit of both. I think theologically, I was asking a lot of those deep questions myself, uh, coming from the more charismatic Pentecostal background that returned back to the Lutheran church and was part of the Lutheran renewal, being a minority in Malaysia, which is a 60% Muslim majority context also is very different. But of course, a lot of our Christianity is very much Western influenced, uh, the books that we read, what's in the bookstores and so on. So of course, I was questioning some of that in seminary already, but planting the church gave me the opportunity to really rethink all of these things. Uh, so, so, the, so the blogging part kind of connected me to the wider world uh, and the discussions around the world, which is quite fascinating. We, we called ourselves Emergent Malaysia at the end, not because we were interested in the brand. It was because we wanted to feel that we were part of something bigger. And I remember my name was in the Emergent Village website and some Malaysians connected to me through that and some Asians here and there. Someone from Singapore, I remember, wrote to me. We got a cohort of people. Anyone who wants to talk about these issues, let's meet once a month. We had two people in that group one was like as reformed as you can go. And the other is like a card carrying open seas. Now he's read everything by Clark Pinnock and, and Greg Boyd and stuff like that. And both of them who actually had online debates <laughs> met in that first cohort <laughs> meeting. And I was this guy who's the pastor of the congregation who just opened up the space. And they were not from my congregation. They were just from different parts. And that was our first cohort. It was funny. You know, but that was before the D.A. Carson book. Remember that book, that book made it difficult for us. You know, that book was so, uh, how should I put it? Well, it was basically anti everything Brian McLaren, <laughs> anti emergent stuff, right? And then it was like guilt by association. Right? And D.A. Carson and those in that, that sphere, they are still very influential in the Malaysian church, you know? So I had to do quite a lot of uh, defending that time to say that, you know, actually this is not what Brian really is saying. Have you ever read his books? <laughs> that kind of stuff, you know. And at the same time saying that, you know, we resonate with the questions, but it doesn't mean our answers are the same. We are trying to find our own answers too. So, so that was quite interesting. And I would say that because of that, it made it difficult for us to really move into a movement, so we were very cautious because we, we wanted our, our conversations to be safe for people so that they didn't want to feel that they were caught in to be accused of you know, being anti-church anti or not orthodox or whatever. Because we are a very small community in Malaysia too, so, so that's another side of things. It's difficult. Somehow, the National Evangelical Christian Fellowship of Malaysia, which is like your NAE in US, their research commission heard about us. A bunch of people, young 
young Christian thinkers, bloggers, talking about postmodern philosophy and stuff like that, you know, engaging in these kind of conversations, right? So we were actually invited, some said summoned, for a conversation <laughs> with their, their theologians. <laughs> it was quite funny because we were just a bunch of guys uh, in, at this moment, all guys. There were some women in, in our group, but they didn't go for the inquiry. I wouldn't want to call it inquisition. It felt like uh, they were like trying to check us out. You know, are these guys dangerous? Are they going to be influential to the young people? And 2007 was when we managed to get Brian McLaren to do a two-day conference. Because Brian, <laughs> God bless him, he was on the way to Australia. And then we asked him, could you just swing over for two days? He was totally jet-lagged. <laughs> I remember we paid for his flight. We kind of, a few of us, we put in all our own money, bought him a ticket to come. One of my other pastor friends, uh, he opened up his church for us to do a two-day conference, which we called Friends in Conversation. That's how we rebranded ourselves. So Friends in Conversation, we used used Brian as an excuse. (laughs) So Brian was kind of like the key speaker, but we had at least three persons responding to him from Malaysia. And these were either Malaysian theologians or or thinkers, etc. And our vision was that Brian was a conversation starter. So he came, he did his thing, gospel, I think I remember something about mission, church, and and all that, kind of safe headings. But the content (laughs) was quite interesting. I still think it's one of the best conferences I've ever attended. (laughs) Not just because we organized it, uh, because it allowed for us to find our voice too. But I'll never forget one thing he said on the way back to the airport when we were sending him back. My paraphrase now, he said something like, Sivin, you guys don't need me. And that was the first time I have ever had a guest speaker tell me we don't, uh, we don't need him, you know, because you have something to contribute yourself. Uh, And I really appreciated that comment. It really gave us a lot of confidence. We're going to stay in the Southern Hemisphere. So while we board the plane, if you have a window seat, you're going to be able to see the Southern Cross in the night sky. And we're flying off to Sydney, Australia. We are going to meet with Dave Andrews, the renegade Christian and author of the book, Christianarchy, and a very early leader who started doing work in the 70s in India, and then in the 80s, back in Australia, started a little gathering called the Waiters' Union. Here's Dave. And the Waiters' Union was an an attempt to find an alternative way of being church that was centered on Jesus, but not exclusive for Christians. So the Waiters' Union was a network of people living in our neighborhood, working towards community that included the most marginalized people in a way that was committed to the radical gospel of Jesus, but not expecting everybody who was a part of that 
to actually subscribe uh, to a commitment to Jesus. So we were, wanted to have a, an open, inclusive, pluralist attempt to see what does it mean to follow Jesus together in the, in the mess, in the chaos of ordinary everyday life. And so that grew over the years and we particularly got involved with established churches trying to intentionally subvert them and help them subvert their own hierarchies, develop mutuality, work towards equality, inclusivity and community. In fact, I, I published an article at that time called The Idiot's Do-It-Yourself Guide for Turning Your Church Upside Down and Inside Out. And um, it's a deliberate strategy to help people subvert established churches and nurture a culture that was alternative, inclusive, empowering. So by the time you're talking about 2000s, we've been doing that for you know, 20, 30 years. And we uh, developed this alternative uh, gathering of people that met in the basement of the Anglican church. We met there because we could meet in a circle. We weren't up in the sanctuary. People could fart without feeling embarrassed about it. Uh, we included uh, a lot of people from the neighbourhood who were, had multiple levels of disabilities and um, we wanted it to be a place where they would feel at home. And so we made that a welcoming space and it was church as empowerment, not as performance. So everybody was invited to have the opportunity to, to speak. Uh, if they'd never done it before, we'd help them do it. Everybody was invited to pl play music, um, and whether people were um, proficient with that or not. So by the year 2000, we continued to develop that um, a community worship event in collaboration with the local church. We'd we, began, we were running um, training programs twice a year where people came from all over Australia that were interested in, in developing alternative faith-based communities. We deliberately did not franchise any of this. We didn't um, do anything that we did in the community in our name. Uh, every group we helped establish, we encouraged them to... Um, uh, own and operate themselves to choose their own name, but we're able to support groups all over Australia that were beginning to uh, experiment and explore ways of what it meant to be a faith community in the context of ordinary everyday life that was empowering the people who were, were most disempowered in their neighbourhood. In 1999, I wrote Christianity, which is my critique of Christianity as a religion and, and calling for total deconstruction and reconstruction of way of practising the faith. And that put me in touch with a lot of people that then were in the emergent movement. I asked Dave about what it was like to have this upstart emerging movement in the US when he'd been at it for so long. And here are his thoughts on that. I met uh, uh, Brian McLaren at at Greenbelt. We were both speaking there together and we got to know each other on the bus and so on. And, and that opened up conversations with a wider range of people that we found were involved in similar experiments around the world. It's who you are as a person that counts. We want to know you and your story, your journey and relate to you in a way that actually does you justice. And so when we met a whole lot of the emergent folk, the label was not was not something either we were salivating about because we were so excited, nor was it one that we were getting really uh, upset about. It wasn't, it wasn't what was the most important thing. I mean, I met you as a person. There was the conversations with you that mattered. And, you know, and 
that's the way we operate it and um, that's fine. Yeah, each, each culture has its strength and weakness. You have a particular orientation as Americans, which we, you know, uh, what do they say? You know, uh, Christianity started out as a movement in, in Judea and then went to Rome and became an institution and then went to America and became a business. I mean, we, we, we understand that. That's okay. And we, because the people we know were decent, honest, humble people open to engagement and dialogue. Well, today is a brand new day. I'll start again. At a certain stage, I felt like you did about some people in the emerging movement, that it was more about let's change the outer clothing of the way we're presenting the gospel, but not radically rethinking the nature of the gospel itself. I think I caused some of those folks a little bit of heartache uh, with my critique of the gospel um, that was being represented or repositioned. Because uh, I, like you, I had this concern that we really need to do a radical rethink of the nature of the gospel itself. And particularly for me, a belief in a God who was bigger than our own religion, a God who worked by the Spirit through all traditions, religious and secular, a God who was uh, embodied in, in, the, in the, the gospel of Jesus, who critically challenged hierarchy and called for mutuality. And that understanding of the gospel um, really threatened most churches and most church leaders and alternative church groups that were trying to collaborate with church leaders because it was essentially subversive. Here we are, you and me, we can see we're going somewhere. But where we go, I don't know, feel it out when we get there. We're getting on our last airplane, friends. We are flying from Australia to LAX. And after we land, we're gonna go meet with Sean Landris. Sean reached out to me in 2005 and said, I've got a group of emerging rabbis and we wanna meet with a group of emerging pastors. Let's put a meeting together. So Sean was leading an organization called Synagogue 3000. I had just been appointed the national coordinator of Emergent Village. And the two of us put our heads together, uh, put out some invitations, and in 2006 had a gathering that was oh, life-changing for me and probably for many of the people who are in the room. So here's Sean reflecting on the impetus for that meeting. What would it look like if we brought some of these emerging Jewish leaders, some of them are rabbis, some of them aren't, and then put them in conversation with some of our emergent colleagues? And I found Emergent Village at that point and connected with you, and then we dreamed up this gathering. We were excited to learn from you and to think through also what it was that was happening that was leading us to be doing very similar things in the world. 
Uh, my name is Tony Jones, and uh, welcome to Reality TV Jewish Christian Emergent Dialogue. I can't tell you, really, the conversations that we've had among ourselves uh, in the last weeks. There was real discomfort at the level of that, that had emerged with some folks, right, at the level of the, the megachurch conversations because of um, attitudes about LGBT inclusion and attitudes about women's rights and reproductive rights that were very uncomfortable for some people, for many people, right? In terms of who are we in conversation with and what does it mean to be in conversation with folks with whom we have profound value disagreements? When we start with friendship, then I think we can gain a tremendous amount from each other while still recognizing and celebrating our differences in how we're distinct. At the same token, right, Christians are asking, why are we meeting with people trying to grow Jewish congregations if the purpose is to build followers of Jesus? Because we're going to be helping people do something different, right? I think what you and I ended up doing in that moment together was saying, hey, we're not looking for locks, you know, lockstep alignment on every single matter of doctrine. We're going to major in the majors, we're going to minor in the minors, but something is happening in our world, something's happening in our society. There's clearly a desire on the part of people out there in the world who are looking for meaning and looking for their path to truth. And we, with humility, are trying to build communities that welcome them in all their imperfections, and those imperfections include evolution on core issues of identity and connection and community. So let us find one another and, and talk. It turns out that in American Jewish life, there had been a very similar movement as we had had in Christian life, where there were kind of megachurch equivalent synagogues who reached out to baby boomers and who had leaders renowned around the country for having these mega synagogues. Uh, but that wasn't really clicking so much with the Gen X rabbis, Sean explains. The thing to know is that in the 80s and 90s, there was a, a massive rise in investment in Jewish education for non-Orthodox Jews. What ended up happening was that these kids would go off to college, they'd get really involved in their Hillel Jewish campus organizations, they'd come home, they'd walk back into the synagogue, they'd know their Hebrew, they'd know their service order, right? Because Jewish services have a ritual to them, have a structure, and there's some knowledge involved. And they'd be sitting next to somebody who not only didn't know Hebrew, but didn't even know what page they were on. And there's something to be said for everybody being in community together and finding a way to be together, and people still like that. But for this particular group, they didn't want to be in services with a rabbi who was preaching to the lowest common denominator of knowledge and engagement. They wanted to be with each other. And so they went off and they formed these independent minyanim. A minyan just means quorum, the you know, prayer quorum of 10. They formed these independent minyanim that were lay-led and they would create these services that met the needs of these highly knowledgeable people. And you could, you know, so you'd walk in and if you didn't know what was going on, that was your problem. That wasn't their problem. We've all traveled with, physically and metaphorically a very long distance using amazing resources to come together. I remember very, very strongly that the feedback we got after that first meeting, and this is just an accident of time, I think, is that 
the feeling on the part of the rabbis and congregational leaders in the room on the Jewish side was that you were so far ahead of them that they, at some level, didn't feel fully equipped to have a second meeting. They felt like they had homework, that they needed to go and meet again. And those are the groups that have since gone on, seven of them have gone on and created a Jewish emergent network. Sharon Brouse, author of the brand new book, The Amen Effect, was in that room, in that meeting, that Synagogue 3000 Emergent Village Summit that we had in 2006, she had planted a synagogue called Ikar in Los Angeles. Here's Sharon. So we launched Ikar in the spring of 2004. And we really launched this community to be a different way of envisioning what Jewish community could look like. I thought if you start from scratch with zero assumptions about what the institutional life of an organization, of a church or a synagogue looks like, what would you do differently? What are some of the things that we're kind of burdened by in the institutional spaces, but we have to, they self-perpetuate? Because I have no assumptions and we can do it whatever way we want. And we launched an immediate, I mean, it was driven by a vision. It was this claim about the role that religion plays in the public space and could play in the public space. We were standing at the intersection of reanimating and reinvigorating Jewish life and also social justice and working to build the beloved community out beyond our community space. But I, we, I mean, we were making it up as we went along. Like we didn't know how to build a community. We didn't know how to build sacred space. Um, and as much as I was saying we could leave behind anything we didn't want from the institutional world, there's a lot that's right in the institutional world also that we needed to learn from. And so I was struggling to find a cohort. I really wanted to find colleagues who I could sit with and engage and ask questions of and learn from and with. I was 29 when we launched the community. And so immediately I joined, I was invited to join Synagogue 3000 and they put me in this cohort with the top rabbis in the country. And I went to a couple of those conferences and realized I really love and respect these rabbis, but they're asking totally different questions than we are. And in a way, being in the wrong cohort made me feel even more lonely than not being in a cohort at all. I was talking to Sean Landris about it, and I said, like, I just I just feel like I need to find people who are asking a different set of questions. And Sean was like, I know exactly who you need to be in conversation with. And so he put this thing together. I honestly had no idea what he was talking about. I mean, I was excited because I always have felt that multi-faith work was, is really critical. I remember showing up at Brandeis Bardeen really because I kind of had faith in Sean and, you know, and, and Joshua, not because I had any real idea of what was in store. And I remember that as soon as we started, I mean, it was lovely to connect with people, but as soon as we started talking about what our work was, I realized how absolutely brilliant this connection was. This is part of what's so exciting about this group of sort of emergent leaders that we're all sort of standing on the threshold, but not necessarily of the old doors. We're kind of creating, we're creating new doors, we're creating windows. So the, the first speaker that, I, as, I re, as I remember it, it was many years ago, it was almost 20 years ago, but the first speaker was a pastor, and I don't honestly remember who it was who said these words, but I think about it all the time. And I remember that he got up and he either told this as his story or the story of someone else, that his father was a pastor of a megachurch, had built this massive property, 40,000 members, 40,000 acres, spent years developing this property. The son was a seminary student and went to visit his dad. And the dad toured him around this incredible, complex, gorgeous, wonderful. 
and at the end of the tour puts his arm around him and says, son, one day all of this will be yours. And the son looks at his dad and says, dad, I don't want any of this. I want a few friends and some Bibles. And maybe he said, and some beer. And I want to try to figure out what God is asking of us. And I heard this and I burst into tears. And I'm like, that's what we're doing. That's exactly what we're trying to do. Like we want to figure out in a, in a, with a generation that has institutional allergies that literally like, it doesn't matter how substantive the program is, is not interested or willing to walk through the gates of what they consider to be an establishment um, or an institution, but is deeply hungry for something spiritual, for something ancient, for ritual, maybe even for God, and definitely for community. We're trying to sit together and figure out what is being asked of us and how can we mine our Jewish tradition to live lives of meaning and purpose? What is being demanded of us in a time of moral crisis? Those were the guiding questions that we set out to to answer. And I felt like, oh, these are my partners in the work. It's these guys, actually. It's different from what I thought. And the Christian Emergent Church was already like a decade, more than a decade um, established. And so I just felt so moved that these questions that we were just starting to ask in the Jewish space, you had been asking already in the Christian context already for many years. And I thought there's a lot for us to learn here. It's not only that we can look to each other, but also that there's a paradigm out there that this is part of a sort of growing cultural trend. I thought there's so much for us to learn together here from one another. There's a lot for me to learn as a brand new you know, rabbi, having launched this community from you who had experience in the field. But also our work is not contradictory, but it's complementary. That we're all working to help people feel connected to community. We're all trying to build a beloved community. We're trying to build a more just and loving society. Our goals are the same, and we're going to pursue different paths in order to get there. But I feel like we're partners in the work in very real ways. Your destination is on your left. Well, our whirlwind tour around the globe has come to an end. It was, as we said at the beginning, non-exhaustive. There was lots of other emergence going on, but hopefully hearing these voices and, and all these different accents paints a picture of what was emerging around the globe, not just in North America, but in many other countries and cultures as well. Before we go, I'm going to turn the mic back over to Dave Andrews from Australia because I asked him if he thought the emerging movement made a difference, moved the needle in the church in Australia or in in the world. And he told me a little fable, a little story, and gave me perspective that I think is so helpful. Here's Dave. There's a a really uh, nice... um uh, a quote from Rabindranath Tagore, one of my favourite uh, Hindu poets, which is one way of answering this, this question that you ask. He said, you cannot see what the clouds have given to the earth by looking at the sky. The only way to uh, see what they've given to the earth is to look at the grass that is grown beneath your feet. 
Now, that is a classic way of framing what has happened in this movement. You look for it in terms of great institutions that have been established and so on, and you can't see it. It's not there, right? I think we're looking in the wrong place. We're instead looking and on the ground in people's lives where people have been nurtured by this and something's grown. Something beautiful has emerged. And uh, some of those green shoots are growing out of the concrete of you know, really resistant uh, institutions. And it is a beautiful thing and that continues till today. You have reached your destination. Emerged is a homebrewed Christianity production. Trip Fuller and Tony Jones are your hosts. Production, mixing, and sound design by Josh Gilbert. Media and marketing by David Trotter. The music you're hearing is from the Cobalt season, thanks to Ryan Sharp. Thanks to all the Emerged members who make this show possible. And thanks to you for listening. See you next time. Listening to Emerged, a crowdfunded podcast, you can help make this possible, get ad-free episodes and two bonus episodes on our off weeks by going to EmergePodcast.com. And guess what? You could be a producer like our friends at the Open Table Network and Karen Sloan. Don't make them lonely. Don't make them lonely.